This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Teal Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 37. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 37 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Happy Friday, Randy. Yes, we made it. <laughs> this is a busy week yes. with six podcasts we did. Oh, yeah. So, so much great... We're ending with a really exciting one. Yes, so much great learning this week. And today we're wrapping it up with Brian Goodwin. Uh, Brian Goodwin is president and CEO at McRell International, a Denver-based nonprofit education research and development organization that serves educators across the United States, the Pacific, and Australia. The mission of McRell is to make a difference in the quality of education and learning for all through excellence in applied research project development, and service. A former teacher and award-winning journalist, Brian has published four books, including Balanced Leadership for Powerful Learning, The 12 Touchstones of Good Teaching, A Checklist for Staying Focused Every Day, Simply Better, Doing What Matters Most to Change the Odds for Student Success and the Future of Schooling, Educating America in 2020. He has a bachelor's degree from Baylor University and a master's from the University of Virginia. And when he's not writing or speaking to audiences, he enjoys spending time with his wife and three daughters in the Colorado high country on skis, foot, or by a warm fire. And he told us his daughter is heading out to the prom tonight. It's snowing in Colorado. It's April 28th here. Um, So (laughs) great to hear. (laughs) All right. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited to talk to you today about about your work, and we're going to focus today on uh, a book that uh, you published about five years ago called The Future of Schooling, and also one of your recent white papers called The Road Less Traveled, Changing Schools from the Inside Out. And we think that there's some connections between those two and some things that uh, we know our listeners, which are mostly school leaders, uh, will find pretty fascinating, we think. And we know we've found them fascinating. So let's start with the future of schooling uh, work uh, and then work into the the conversation into the white paper. So to give the audience some context of the work, uh, the future of schooling, what was the beautiful question, uh, what author Warren Berger defines as ambitious and actionable behind the research in the future of schooling? 
Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. I'm a, I'm a big Warren Burger fan myself. And um, I think it really was this. Is, is, is Instead of trying to pre- predict the future, which a lot of people try to do, we actually said, let's go right to what's most uncertain about the future and then write scenarios around that. So let's imagine how we might see the future breaking in different directions and then really kind of engage in the thought experiment of what the future might look like if it goes those two different directions. I think what's fascinating about this this idea is that it's something that, at least in K-12, most school leaders aren't really thinking about. We're you know, so highly regulated and there's stuff that gets pushed down to us from our states and we're almost in a reactive mode. And this idea of looking into the future and trying to be proactive and using uh, the sort of scenario thinking that you describe in the book, I think is really fascinating and something that uh, us as school leaders could benefit from. So it'll be exciting to hear more about it. You know, it's, it's inter- I, was, I was in New Jersey recently, and, and uh, when, I, when I was introduced to the group, somebody said, welcome to Mandateville, right? And that's, that's kind of what we feel like we're living <laughs> in. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, the, you know, the, this next, um, you know, few minutes together will be a chance for people to step outside that kind of constant press of what's, going, what's happening right now and think about where things really are going. So thinking about where things are going, since you published in 2011, have you seen the conversation and work in the field move closer to any of those four scenarios that you and your co-authors developed? You know, how, how have the rapid changes in the economy, technology, and globalization impacted the critical uncertainties that you use to define each of those scenarios? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I, I think that the uncertainties have kind of stayed the same. But some of what we were calling drivers, and so drivers are things where you're pretty certain um, it's gonna, you can kind of predict the direction. So two of the biggest drivers for us um, were actually technology and globalization. So we figured we could predict those things. There's something called Moore's Law, which says that uh, computing power doubles every two years or so. So we figured we can, we can probably count on that for, for at least the foreseeable future. We also figured that the world, uh, you know, per Thomas Friedman, would, be, would keep getting flatter. And... Um, because of globalization and, and demographics are one other thing that's really easy to predict because uh, there's an ironclad rule that says everybody gets one year older every year, right? So you can kind of uh, map out um, how, how society is going to change based upon our, our current dem- demographics. So and uh, what all of that means, like the biggest takeaway for us was that we can predict there will be an aging society. And as our society gets older, it's going to mean that there'll be more constraints on resources, more requirements um, to, su- you know, to support Social Security, for example, Medicare. So those are two things that we, we kind of figured were, were kind of baked in. Um, so I get, but the bigger question is, like, what are we going to do with that extra computing power? And as resources get more constrained, then what are our priorities? And, you know, in fact, I think we kind of predicted, um, you know, at the time we were writing the book, we were still, uh, the, the housing bubble had just, you know, burst. And I think people were hoping resources will come back to education. There were some that were warning at the time, this is the new normal. And basically we wrote our scenario saying it is the new normal and we're going to have uh, resource constraints no matter what. And I think we were actually kind of right about that. So. But back in 2010 when we wrote this, there were two big uncertainties. Um, and we saw them essentially as, as this, um, and actually there's still uncertainties. But, but the first one was around the question of standardization um, of education outcomes. So the question was, would we keep moving towards increasing reliance on standardized testing with this kind of get tough accountability behind it? Um, or would, moving, would, would learning move more towards kind of a personalized mode where we had lots of different outcomes for kids? And, Obviously, I think in the last five years, for the most part, the policy environment has really um, 
tilted towards um, the, you know a heavily standardized approach. Almost all of the world. Um, uh, you know, in the past 40, uh, past five years, for example, 46 states adopted the Common Core, and 43 moved to create more rigorous teacher evaluation systems. So I think we've been living in the world of of heavily standardized outcomes, and and it's not just uh, in the U.S. By the way, Pazi Sauber, he was the architect of those reforms in Finland. He wrote a book called Finnish Lessons. <laughs> he calls it the Global Education Reform Movement, or GERM for short. Basically, says this this whole top down standardized outcomes. Um, has really kind of spread like a virus across the, the, the globe. He also makes the point that it's ultimately counterproductive. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment as we talk about the Road Less Travel paper. Um, but that said, I think there's some cracks that are starting to appear now in this standardized approach to learning. And we certainly see it in the number of states that are kind of backpedaling from the Common Core. Um, you know, where you all are, um, in, not, not far from you in New York State, 20% of kids opted out, opted out of the exam last year, the state exam. Um, and you see places like Kansas, I was, I was speaking to the Commissioner of Education there recently, Kansas is now going to focus less on standardized outcomes and more on what they're calling student success. So um, making sure that kids can collaborate, they can communicate, they can pursue their own talents. Something similar is happening in, in Hawaii. Um, they're creating what they're are call, are calling ha outcomes, and ha is the, uh, the Hawaiian word for breath, like aloha, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they're uh, they're looking to emphasize things that aren't just academics, but but the importance of students being connected to their own culture, their history, uh, their their environment, and really the aloha spirit of Hawaii. So I think right now uh, the whole idea of standardized outcomes versus very personalized outcomes is really in flux, and maybe the pyramid is swinging back to the middle point. <laughs> now the question is, you know, which way uh, things will go. So that was the that was the first big uncertainty that we we're looking at. Mm -hmm. The second big uncertainty, at the time we were calling it basically optimized versus reinvented uh, as the emphasis for reform. So really the question is whether all of our emphasis, all of our policy making, all of our resources would be going to improving the current system or would it be moving towards a disruption of what we, what we have happening? Um, kind of like what personal computers did to mainframe computers back in the 70s or what Netflix did to video stores in the um, 2000s. Or actually, what Uber is doing to the ca the taxicab industry right now, um, you know, back in 2008, Clayton Christensen had made this uh, prediction that in, in his book Disrupting Class that by 2020, 50% of high school kids will be learning online. Um, I don't think we see that happening just yet, um, but then again, you know, things can happen really fast. That's that's what disruptions are. You think about blockbuster video going from a multi-billion-dollar company with something like 9,000 stores to being bankrupt in about a span of about three years. So, so things can happen really fast. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, um, again, the whole, we're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to see how, you know, how things might, might go. Um, so I, I think, you know, you know what, people might wonder, are we still on a cusp of kind of dramatic change? Um, and it's hard to say. If you look at, you know, certain indicators around the public support of, of charter schools, the public supports charter schools in about a two to one ratio, but they oppose uh, vouchers in about the same ratio. So it seems that people are saying they want some choice, um, but they're not they're not you know uh, wed to to vouchers. And at the same time, what's interesting too is that only about five percent of people or five percent of kids are actually in 
charter schools. So it kind of makes you wonder if maybe people like the idea of charter schools more than they actually want to activate on it. Um, maybe there's something kind of like the grocery store rule that you don't want to go more than about five miles to your grocery <laughs> store or your school. You know, people want to be driving across town to schools. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly in rural areas, it's really not an option. So um, I also think there's kind of, you know, uh, uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn mentioned um, my, my daughter going to prom tonight. So there's something for parents, like there's the traditions and maybe there's kind of an inertia with all those traditions too. So that may be kind of a creating kind of um, holding things where they are. But um, that doesn't mean that there won't be a disruptive change that could still be lurking around the corner. And in fact, I've had just this week conversations with officials here in Colorado that are all thinking about Clayton Christensen again and saying it does feel like maybe a disruption could be coming fairly soon. And um, and I wonder if it m- might be more along the lines of kind of what Uber has done. So as opposed to like, you know, Clayton Christensen was saying all learning is, go- is going to go online. Well, Uber didn't really change in a lot of ways the fundamentals of taxi driving, right? We, we still get in a car and somebody else drives us somewhere. But it certainly changes how we conjure up the, the taxi cab, um, allows us to rate taxi drivers and really put the control in our hands. So I wonder if there won't be something more like that where um, technology will allow maybe students to be more in charge of their own learning, map out their own learning progressions, um, and maybe see learning happening in lots of different places, whether it's school or museums or or maybe even like really hands-on kind of very old-fashioned looking um, apprenticeships. Yeah, I think that your analogy to Uber is really kind of interesting because it certainly seems like, now this is my nearly 30th year in education, and certainly in the last five years, there's been more and more conversation amongst us as practitioners uh, in that in the idea of students taking more control of their learning, you know, lo- differences in locations, having it be more very hands-on. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting analogy. So, you know, I think if we, maybe a, a metaphor for how disruption could happen in education could be Uber itself. Um, you know, when you think about Uber, it didn't really change the fundamentals of, of taxi driving, right? We still get somebody else to drive us around in a, in a car that's not our own. But what it did change is how we um, hail a cab, right? Um, we, we're, we can look on a map and see where we're going um, so we're not getting taken for a ride or getting our wallets taken for a ride. Um, and really what it's done is it's, it's kind of put the power of uh, back in the, in the hands of passengers, not in the drivers or in cab companies. So it may be the same thing um, that could happen with schools. That, we, that That's what technology may do for learning. Allow students to really be um, in the driver's seat um, figuratively, right? Um, but allow them, you know, to, to map maybe their own learning, whether it's going to be in school or museums or very hands-on and maybe old-fashioned looking apprenticeships. So uh, moving on is uh, this, this idea that as school leaders, we tend to be kind of trapped in the moment and not so forward thinking. Uh, and this idea that we get buried in the day-to-day responsibilities of education. It's kind of a blind spot of ours, I think. So how do we change that? How can leaders do a better job of tracking trends and thinking sort of possibly in that scenario, using scenario thinking, and plan more thoughtfully for the future of education? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to do, obviously, um, given all of the pressures and everything that has to happen in education. One of the things that we talk a lot about um, to groups and to, to leaders and so forth is just really being intentional, um, always asking that why question. You know, Simon Sinek talks about starting with why. 
Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's one of the best things teachers can do. And I, I've, I've written about this for myself. I remember back in the day I was teaching the Scarlet Letter and I could never really answer the question, why am I teaching this again? Um, and there, there could be good reasons for that, right? But I think my answer was like, well, you know, the Puritans are cool or something. I don't know. Um, but I think if teachers start to say, well, um, you know, and, and we see this, uh, people leap right to technology and they think that's, that makes them more futuristic. But you might ask the question, well, why are we, why are we using technology in the classroom? Um, let's be really clear what deep learning looks like and then use technology to help us get there. And I think maybe sometimes the best way we can plan for the future is just to recognize that it's going to be impossible to predict the future 10, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Um, probably the one thing we could say for sure about the future is that it's not going to stay the same, right? It would be amazing if 30 years from now we say, wow, that was weird. Nothing happened in the last 30 years. <laughs> so if we know that change will keep happening, then you think, well, what does that mean about our kids? And, I, you know, I've got three kids myself, right? So what do I want them to be? I want them to be lifelong learners and be really adaptable um, and able to solve big problems because I'm afraid we're handing our kids some pretty big problems to solve. I suppose that's true of any generation, but I think our kids are, are going to have some some really particularly thorny problems to solve and as you know as Thomas Friedman d- describes it the uh, the hot flat and crowded future um, that they're going to find themselves in so I think given all that un- unpredictability and those uh, unpredictability and those challenges maybe the most important thing we can do uh, to plan for the future is help our kids develop growth mindsets and understand that you know learning never ends um, and that's why I'm I'm so um, fascinated with this idea of curiosity. Let's help kids be curious because I think that will serve them well in life. So thinking big picture about, you know, continuing to use the word why, you know, modeling that ourselves, asking the question why, starting with the why, but also helping students to develop a passion for asking questions and thinking about, you know, how things fit together and, you know, thinking about, I'm making connections in my mind, you know, learner agency and, and inquiry based and a lot of these pieces of the puzzle that we have been spending some time learning more about this year. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that's, that's um, when we talk about asking, um, it, you could call it beautiful questions, but also it could be essential questions that you want to be mm-hmm. asking kids in classrooms. Um, my daughter actually was recently doing a, a school project that I thought was a perfect example of kind of that essential question or the bigger question or fertile ideas, you might call them. Um, instead of the usual, like, what are the four causes for the, for the fall of the Roman Empire, they were actually reading a paper that said, did the Roman Empire actually ever fall or did it become something different? So, like, I think that's a way to, to help our kids be really um, critical thinkers. Um, and I think we, we would probably all agree that's going to be uh, critical for, for them uh, and for our society, frankly. So are there any new future trends that you're seeing since the publication of this book? Yeah, you know, there's one that, that uh, it's kind of funny because we, we, in one of the scenarios, we talked about people having what we were calling Uber Ubies, right? So like these uh, <laughs> handheld, we just came up with a term, right? Um, funny that Uber was one of them. But um but it was this idea of like handheld devices that could that could in- integrate your phone and um, a computer and uh, a camera and stuff, and so we kind of pre- we kind of predicted that or you know imagined that I guess. What I think we didn't really anticipate was what that was going to do for uh, just daily life, right? To have smartphones and um, you know and how much how much it really does change what you do when you have all of this technology, all of this information streaming, streaming into your, your pocket. And, um, 
you know, you see it all the time in restaurants where people are sitting together at the table and they're not talking to one another, they're on their phones, right? Um, and then you think about, you know, for educators, I, they're thinking about this already, cyberbullying and, and all the anxieties about, um, you know, that kids have about what's being said about them online and withdrawal that they go through when they don't have their phones. And, you know, it's interesting in, in Europe and East Asia, they're, they're actually becoming concerned about techno stress on kids. And there's even, they even have like rehab clinics for kids to go to when they're addicted to video games. And so, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I, 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 that's one thing I don't think we predicted at all, you know, how much mm-hmm. having these little smart devices would actually change human behavior. Um, just a, a little side note, <laughs> maybe I'm proud of this. Uh, one of the things that we kind of imagined too, one of the scenarios is that kids would start wearing jeans too long and cuffing them like they did in the 1950s. And I, I just noticed that the other day. So yeah, it's back. Out, how about that? And I'm not a fashion fashionista by any means, as my wife will tell you, but I just thought it was sort of funny. So. I wonder what data uh, you, you saw that made you uh, articulate that particular aspect of a scenario. I don't know. Maybe it's like the more things change, the you know, the more they stay the same. And that's probably why I, I'm keeping my pleated pants in the closet. I figure someday they'll come back again, right? So. <laughs> I'm making my husband throw them out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'll be, he'll be throwing them back in your face someday. Oh, yeah. So 2070. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned earlier uh, your interest in and your passion and curiosity. And, and certainly in your paper, The Road Less Traveled, we're focused here on inquiry and curiosity. And you suggest the need uh, for a fundamental shift in how we think about schooling and learning. Can you talk to us about this shift from an outside-in approach to one that's more inside-out? Yeah. So let me just, you know, I mentioned uh, Posse Sauberg and this whole idea of germ, right? This, that that um, basically what's been happening worldwide um, for the last at least 15 years, if not maybe 25 years, we've been operating under, under a pretty top-down approach to school reform that basically looks like this, you know, that we, we set standards. I don't think anyone would fault having standards for learning, but we pretty quickly attach to those standards, high-stakes testing, and then accountability measures. And the whole idea of all of that is like we're trying to push ideas into the system. Dan Pink, uh, in his book Drive, would call that motivation 2.0, right? It's all about external re- rewards and punishments, um, which sometimes are effective, but we know, though, that that really um, they're only most effective for driving pretty uh, simple, straightforward kinds of changes. And I don't think that's what we're about right now. Um, in fact, you know, when, when, the, when the No Child Left Behind was passed, Rod Page made a comment that we're trying to do something that's never been done before in the history of humankind, which is educate all of our citizens to a high level. So it's really a very complex challenge. And Dan Pink makes the point that when you're trying to be creative and trying to do innovation, you kind of need a different set of, of motivators. And he talks about motivation 3.0, right? Um, being purpose and mastery and autonomy. And so really what we're talking about in the, in the road less traveled uh, paper is how could we use those drivers to create um, uh, the next wave of reform. I don't think we want to lose the fact that we've been focusing on all students. That's really important. I think data is important. But if we were to use those drivers of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, what might it look like? Um, And I think you'd have to start with kids themselves and saying, what would it look like actually if we spent a lot of time getting kids motivated or getting kids um, curious? And I think there's a lot of data that would suggest that right now we've created this whole system that the kids don't care a whole lot about. Just one little fact, a little fun fun fact for you. Um, a guy named Stephen Levitt, who wrote Freakonomics, did a study in Chicago, um, lots of places actually, but Chicago was one of them, where the day of the test, the day of the standardized achievement test, 
um, they, they would tell kids, if you do well on the test, you'll get a reward, like a $10 monetary um, prize. So they didn't know about, about this happening beforehand. They didn't study for it anymore. And yet, they looked on average like six months smarter, um, which I think tells you how little they care, have cared about the test to date, right? Um, so how, what if we built a system that was really more about getting kids curious? And the nice thing about curiosity is that we're actually born with it. We don't have to instill it. What we have to stop doing, though, is beating it out, out of kids. And there's a woman at Williams College, Susan Engel, and she's done research that shows that really the longer kids stay in school, the less curious they are. Um, and, and it has a lot to do with the teachers' interactions with kids. So I think, and there's so many other um, positive effects of curiosity on motivation, on academic achievement, actually on longevity. There's all kinds of things. So. If we were to, um, and the whole idea of the inside out approach then is like if we start with students' motivation to learn, and not just like entertaining them, but really learning rigorous stuff at a deep level, and made that the focus of our effort, then we'd probably have to think differently about how do we get teachers to do that? It's really building teachers' capacity, um, getting them to ask things like you know deeper, higher order questions, um, and getting kids to ask their own questions, like those essential questions, right, those fertile ideas. Um, Teachers would need to figure out how to help kids develop growth mindsets, not fixed mindsets. And there's not really like an off-the-shelf program that you could say, here's the, the curiosity, you know, ACME curiosity kit. So we'd really want to be developing teachers' capacity, kind of following what Bruce Joyce and Beverly Showers wrote about years ago with peer coaching and, and, um, and getting teachers to work together to allow curiosity to, to flourish. And then I think the other piece that, that follows on that is that um, you know leadership looks different too. Now we need leaders who are empowering changes in their schools, um, and I think what we've done over the last 15 years is kind of turned our principals into into middle managers, saying you have to implement somebody else's program. And I know that's not how principals want to be operating. They really want to be saying let's let's op let's operate this school more like a Silicon Valley you know startup. We're being entrepreneurial and we're we're pushing things forward, and and hopefully we start to put some of the joy back into into schooling as well. So this idea of a new leader and new leadership approaches is something that Randy and I have been talking about um, quite a bit. And, and what does that look like for us in our role and how do we support the leaders around us to be able to, to move in this direction? And, you know, reflecting on how, you know, how have our leaders become, our principals become middle managers. So lots to think about there. Yeah, and it really, it is kind of a pivot from giving orders to asking questions. And so I know you all, you're, you're tuned into um, the more beautiful question idea. And I think that's what leaders are doing, need to be doing as well, is asking questions about what would get kids more curious and, and how, you know, how can we change our teaching practices to be better and, and being that kind of um, thought partner, frankly, to their own teachers too. Yeah, I don't know if you saw uh, Warren Berger had a question week this week. No, I didn't um, see that. Yeah, it was March, what, March 13th, Randy, something like that. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, one introduction that we put out to our teachers and, and leaders and was a great okay. way to, to jumpstart that. Yeah, so great. exciting. Great, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you share any examples where the inside-out approach is being applied that you've seen and is really making a difference? Sure, yeah. And actually, they're, they're, I've got two, and they were kind of being done in parallel. And the first is really um, was in um, – the Northern Met Metropolitan Re Regional District in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, in fact, this is what really got us tuned into the idea of inside out and curiosity. And so there's a guy named Wayne Craig, and he was the uh, regional director, essentially the superintendent of about a 75,000 student region. So a lot, a, a pretty a pretty sizable area in Victoria. 
It had long been languishing as one of the worst um, performing in the state of Victoria. And so it was really Wayne's insight where he said, you know, I, I can't do what everybody else has always tried to do, is, which is push things from the top down. Instead, he said, I'm going to start with this idea of curiosity, literacy, numeracy, and curiosity. That was his, his mantra as he said it. He was working with a guy named David uh, Hopkins, who had been Tony Blair's education advisor in the UK. And, and David had seen also this, this pattern where you, you hit a performance plateau after, you know, when you keep pushing things from the top down. You hit a performance plateau because people have to, they don't get any smarter about their practices if all you're saying is here's the program. You really have to develop teacher capacity. So what they did then in Melbourne was say, let's find the practices that teachers are already using that get kids curious. And now let's have teachers train one another on those practices using peer coaching. And the long and short of it there is that they went from having about, um, actually they, they reduced the number of kids in the bottom performance bands by about 3,000 and increased the, the number of kids in the top performance bands, brought basically 7,000 kids from the, from the middle of the pack to the top of the pack. So it's about 10,000 students whose lives were changed over the, uh, about a three-year period. So that's one example of Inside Out. There's another example that, that was in parallel. So uh, these two folks weren't talking to one another, but in Clarksville Montgomery um, School District in Tennessee, they've been covered like an Ed Week and um, KQED Mind Shift um, in San Francisco. Um, they were, they'd done all, uh, you know, a lot of the things right. They'd kind of established new routines and procedures around instruction and leadership and so forth. But they had also gotten stuck until the, the superintendent, B.J. Worthington, said, I've got to actually, I'm going to step back as a leader. I'm going to empower my school leaders. Um, and he would tell them, you know, you are the only expert on your school. So it was about developing their leadership capacity to identify the right changes to make and then getting really clear and focused about one really important thing, which is that the most important thing a school leader can do is ensure consistency of high quality instruction in their schools. But it, that it's gonna look a little bit different for, for every teacher and really as a leader, you differentiate your leadership approach. So long and short of, of that story is that, um, that uh, they also, by the way, implemented 360 reviews for principals. So it's like we're all in this together mm -hmm. and it really, you know, mm -hmm. established mm -hmm. principals as servant leaders too. So here's what happened there is they, they've gone from being kind of middle of the pack in Tennessee to, to, to 13th overall in the state, had the highest student growth rate of any district in Tennessee last year, not by being heavy handed and top down, but really by developing people's capacity, um, principal's capacity, leader's capacity, and really um, uh, following all those kind of uh, elements of motivation 3.0, providing uh, some autonomy to school leaders in terms of what the school improvement plan needed to be. Um, helping teachers develop mastery. And then really, um, they spent a lot of time talking about the moral purpose of, of what we're trying to do. That was also true in, um, in Melbourne as well. So getting back to what is it we're really trying to accomplish here. Um, so I think it's, it's a testament to the fact that when you employ those motivation 3.0 factors, it really can have positive effects um, in, in large systems. So it makes me wonder, uh, with all the change that's uh been forced on education and not much of it has really been successful or worked. Um, this idea of the role of leadership really being to uh, build the capacity of the people within the organization to bring about the change. That's sort of like you're saying, inside out yeah. versus outside yeah. in. That's sort of top down, the leaders directing people to do something. And so it really gets us as leaders to rethink uh, our role and yeah. you know our actions and are they outside in actions or inside out actions. 
uh, and which ones are going to be the most effective to bring about the change, the changes that we're looking for. Yeah, that's really true. And, and one way to think about that is, am I creating threat conditions in my school or am I creating challenge conditions? Mm -hmm. And research would show that those challenge conditions are what make people more creative and innovative and actually uh, perform better. And so um, companies that have a leader that challenge them tend to have better performance over the long haul than, than leaders who make those, that kind of threat conditions. Near the end of the paper, you uh, write this quote that really stood, stood out to me. It says, uh, we loathe the constraints of our current reform paradigm, yet underestimate our power to walk away from it, experiencing the freedom of a new, more engaging system of schooling. How do we as leaders take that first step? Yeah, I think one of the first steps might be really to have the conversation with your stakeholders about you know, your educators, your students, your parents, board members, community members, businesses, what do you want um, out of your, you know, like a, let's, let's imagine a 26-year-old graduate of our system. What do we want from them? And that's exactly the question that the Commissioner of Education and others in Kansas went around the state asking. And what they found um, was that in, in, nobody said, I want kids who are really great at, at filling in bubble sheets on standardized tests, right? They, they, they said instead we want, we want kids who, who can communicate, who are curious, who are lifelong learners, who can follow their own passion. And so I think in some ways that can give you the courage as a leader to say, too, this, I've got my community behind me. Because I think that's, that's, that's people's biggest fear is that I'm going to be way out in front of where people want to be. But I think if, you took the, if people take the time to sit down and really talk to people about what they want, you know, together we can say, let's start to move those goalposts so that we're, we're focusing on, on what matters most to everybody. Um, I think the other thing, and I mentioned this too, like the other thing for leaders is to, it's hard, but sometimes we feel like we have to have all the answers. Maybe we, the, what we really have to have is all the questions, right? The, be, the better questions to ask and ask those more beautiful questions. You know, maybe, for example, like asking people in your school, what would it look like if we, if we were to really focus on getting kids curious? Would everything else get easier if we did that? And maybe, you know, what if that were the problem we're trying to solve? Um, would we feel more joyful? Were a kid, would our kids feel more joyful? So, or, you know, I guess finally, maybe the question to ask is, what questions should we be asking right now? What are the most important questions to, to ask? And maybe also one, one way to kind of get people's noses off the grindstone and so, you know, sit back for a moment and go, now, what is it? What is it that I wanted to be doing when I became an educator? Am I doing that? What would it look like if I if I really felt like I were I were f uh, fulfilling uh, why I got into this profession in the first place? Wow, I love that. We don't have to have all the answers. We just have to have questions. <laughs> it takes us um, into a different frame of mind. You know, heading into a meeting to solve a problem, starting to just ask some questions about this this challenge, just starting to solve the problem. Yeah. In fact, Powerful. it's something I've started, I've started doing with my own uh, when I have one-on-one -on -one meetings with, with my team. I don't have my bulleted list anymore. Now, now I have a list of questions mm -hmm. uh, that I think about long and hard and that, you know, ask them to think about too. So you've certainly shared a lot of um, interesting tidbits with us and stories and examples and um, your work and there are a lot of resources here. You know, what are you thinking about right now? What are your, what are your beautiful questions to inspire you for your um, next, next piece of writing or next challenge yeah, in your yeah. work? 
Well, certainly, I'm curious about curiosity still, and and, and the research team here is is, is thinking about how, you know how can we keep studying curiosity and what interventions can we use to help curiosity flourish and what happens you know when we do that better. I guess another question, maybe maybe um, I alluded to it earlier. Another question I've got on my mind as a parent and also you know and just in the work that we do is going back to this idea of the smart devices and the explosion and how quickly it's happened over a relatively short period of time and. And I guess I worry about it. And so I'm going to start in a dark place, but I'm going to hopefully end up in a bright one, right? Okay, but but I worry a bit about <laughs> – I, I won't bring you down here at the end, but I okay. worry a little bit about what, it, what it's doing to our brains. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was at the airport. And I, I was standing in line. And, you know, I looked around and thought everybody, like everybody, has their noses in their phones. And, like, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have that. Um, and, I, you know, I, and I think sometimes we think we're being productive, you know, when we're, when we're answering emails or whatever. But sometimes I wonder if that's really true and, you know, and if – I guess if Siri can answer our question, is it really a, a beautiful question to ask in the first place? Or should we take a moment to pause a bit? And I'm thinking about, you know, writers like Daniel Goleman and Simon Sinek have been recently sending up alarms about, our, you know, have smartphones shattered our ability to focus and pay attention? And I was just listening to Ariana Huffington the other day, and she, she's written a whole book about the virtue of sleep. And basically she says we need to unplug from these screens. Um, read a book, get sleepy, give ourselves eight hours of shut eye. Um, and there was something over the weekend that Denver Post actually was talking about in praise of boredom and how it's actually good to be bored sometimes. Um, so instead of standing in, the, in line at the grocery store and look, you know, looking at our phones, it's actually spacing off. And they, there's been studies done that when people are, are um, actually copying numbers from a phone book um, and then asked to do a creative activity, they're far more creative after they've had to do something really boring. And I think what it is is that Making our brains occupy themselves is actually a good exercise. So, and I, you know, you hear teachers worrying about what are these devices doing to our kids? Are is it diminishing their ability to pay attention and so forth? So, um, so you know, I, and I think there are there are some things coming out of the research that say you know sometimes trying to read online is more difficult, um, and there may be some concerns about what these things are doing to our, our kids' brains. So I was thinking, if my daughter Emma is listening, Emma, yes, this is why you don't have a smartphone, right? You'll, you'll you've got a flip phone still. Um, <laughs> But I think maybe the bright side, though, is that you do see an increasing emphasis um, and interest in mindfulness in schools and helping our kids maybe power down a bit, disconnect from digital distractions and connect with one another. So um, I guess I would add, you know, add that I'm not a Luddite, far from it. I'm, I'm the worst offender when it comes to, you know, nose in my smartphone. In fact, I walked, in, I walked into a ladies' room recently doing that, so it's pretty embarrassing. But maybe wake-up call, too. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh way yeah there's all there's yes. all kinds of problems so, with that that's a cautionary <laughs> tale yes yeah so don't do that but actually i think it, it might have been like i said a wake up call and a chance to say maybe we all need to sort of unplug from time to time and and maybe that's my next beautiful question then is like do we need to teach ourselves and our own kids to power down digitally in order to power up mentally Wow, that's an exciting question because we, we feel that ourselves, right, Randy, pulled away from the device, you know, we'll sit at lunch and one of us turns it upside down and the other one picks it up, you know, it's, it is a, it is then, a huge distraction. And then, and then somebody gives a look to the other person like, come on, let's go. Right, <laughs> right, Conversation. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly, right. Conversation quality, Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Um, in the show notes, we'll link some of Brian's work, and you can connect with Brian on Twitter at Brian R. Goodwin. You can also check out McCrell on Twitter at McCrell. And several resources will be linked there as well. 
Well, thank you all. It's been it's been a lot of fun, and uh, and I, I look forward to to following your work as well. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving us your time this afternoon. This has been an excellent and enlightening conversation. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you. Each episode, we leave you with a couple questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions. Do you currently work within an inside-out or outside-in paradigm? What steps might you take to shift your mindset and release more curiosity in your teachers and students? How can an inside-out paradigm coupled with scenario thinking improve your practice with students and teachers? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 2, Episode 37. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes, let us know your star rating, and consider leaving a one- or two-sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye now. want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.